Hello friends, welcome back to Lingering on the Lectionary, where we reflect on the life of the churches, the local academy, and the rhythm of the church's liturgy. Thanks for being here. Today I talk with Dr. Adonis Vidu, who teaches at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. We talk about two of his recent books on Trinitarian theology, the theological implications of the divine missions, and the role of systematic theology in the life of the believer. Thanks for listening. Well, welcome, Adonis. Thank you for being here. Today, we're going to discuss some of your recent work in systematic theology and the doctrine of the Trinity. But first, could you introduce yourself and tell us a bit about what you do and teach at Gordon-Conwell? Hey, Chad. Uh, thanks for having me on your podcast. Um, um, I um, am originally from the country of Romania uh, in Eastern Europe, um, where I have uh, done my theological education. Uh, uh, bachelor in theology, master's in philosophy, and then I did a PhD in the UK. I've been teaching at Gordon Conwell since um, 2008. Uh, so <clears throat> um, prior to that, I've been uh, teaching theology in Romania. Uh, and my work at Gordon Conwell focuses on um, theology. So I, I'm a professor of theology at Gordon Conwell, and I also teach. Uh, theological hermeneutics, um, which has to do a little bit with my background and my doctoral work in the UK. Um, but it's it's mostly theology. And, you know, in terms of electives and things like that, I teach the Trinity a lot uh, these days, uh, Doctrine of the Atonement, uh, Bart, um, modern theology, that kind of stuff. So anything that has to do with modern theology, uh, even sometimes philosophical theology, um, but my love right now is is the doctrine of the Trinity, no question. Good. Uh, that's a good segue to thinking about some of your works. Uh, last year, you published a book called The Same God Who Works All Things uh, from Erdman's, which focuses on the doctrine of inseparable operations and what it means for the triune God to act. And your most recent book uh, is a smaller constructive introduction to the divine missions with Cascade Books. So I, I thought maybe we could start by th thinking through it, when you're looking at your uh, most recent book on the introduction to the divine missions, how do you see this book uh, in relation to last year's title? And just kind of what are you up to uh, when you are introducing here uh, your primary uh, arguments? Yeah, so maybe a little bit of history would help here. Um, my editor at Erdman's, uh, was Michael Thompson. And Michael, <clears throat> this was when Michael was at Erdman's. He's now at Whiptonstock. And Michael um, was the one who sort of ushered me in with the project on inseparable operation at Erdman's, the same God who works all things. And, and, and from the very beginning, he was like, could we also pitch this to a kind of a broader audience to have a more of more of an introductory uh, shorter book that kind of conveys the same ideas, um, and uh, but it does it in a more accessible kind of way. Um, so, long story short, Michael moves to Whip and Stock, and uh, I decided I owed it to him uh, to uh, to sort of pitch my work to Whip and Stock. So, you know, uh, this book with Cascade, which is an imprint of, of Whip and Stock, uh, came out. The Divine Missions, <clears throat> which is not exactly um, simply a popularization of mm -hmm. um, the same God who works all things, but it's really more of an introduction to uh, one of the categories, um, one of the concepts that I 
work with in the book, but do not take any much time developing it in the book, which is the, the notion of the divine missions. Um, and I, as I, as I was reading, I mean, as I was working on inseparable operations, I realized, wait a minute, this, this is such a beautiful notion, uh, such a powerful, um, such a powerful tool to have uh, in the theologian's toolbox. Uh, and it's so underappreciated and underexplored. And I thought, wouldn't it be great to to do a, sh a shorter introduction to something like this? Mm -hmm. So that's how this book uh, came out. Um, and then the category of mission is is in my in my my larger Erdman's book, um, but it's not it's not developed. So what I wanted to do is I did not want to write a monograph, uh, another mon monograph, a thick book uh, on the divine missions, uh, but just to kind of you know, wet people's appetites, you know, uh, do a little teaser, hopefully invite theologians, maybe such as yourself or someone else uh, to get deeper into this into this uh, concept and perhaps write something much more substantive. That's really helpful. And uh, in particular, that's one of the things as I was reading, uh, having worked through your uh, larger book and then work through the smaller book, getting the sense that it was it was not just a distillation, as you mentioned, a popular uh, level distillation of the larger book, uh, but taking one of the key ideas that you didn't have a chance to uh, articulate fully in the other book, but was a, ma a big part of the argument, and then to kind of tease out some of those, or articulate some of those implications, I found the book on divine missions helped me understand a little bit further about what you were doing in your uh, inseparable operations book, and then vice versa. Uh, having read your book there, it helped me see what you were doing in the uh, the introduction to the divine missions. Um, mm. mm -hmm. I think there's uh, a, a nice a nice relationship between those uh, those two mm. books, for sure. Mm. Yeah, some ideas are are definitely um, definitely repeated, uh, you know, necessarily. So, uh, but I I do not have any kind of huge overlap in 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 the, the two between the two books which is what some 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 readers were interested to find out someone asked me on twitter hey how much of the how much of the first book is in the second one should i buy should i get the second second one as well <laughs> i mean and I, and you do see that sometimes people are just shamelessly repeating their material right. you know, in other publications and i try to stay away from that yeah. Well, the yeah, the answer is always like yes, buy buy the new book, um, and then regardless of whether it uh, contains that. But uh, in some ways, there's a couple paragraphs that kind of summarize the main contours of your argument in this book, um, mm. and it's like, oh right, that's the two or three hundred pages of that other book is right there. Um, right. So that's kind of that. I thought thought you did a good job of signaling where that overlap is, uh, mm. not in the sense of the content of the book, but just the flow of the development of the doctrines. Um, I thought that was, I thought that was yeah. pretty helpful. Yeah, um, so, so as you're thinking about some of the, uh, main, uh, dialogue partners that you have in the book, in, in one sense, there's some, uh, not a overlap of content, but some of the, uh, similar, uh, moves that you make in the book. Mm -hmm. And one of those is in both books, you draw upon Augustine and Aquinas as important dialogue partners. Um, so as you're, as you're thinking about that, what makes these particular figures so important for the development of doctrine in general, uh, but then also the theology of the divine missions in particular? Yeah, I mean, there's so much about 
there's so much that I love about Augustine and Aquinas. Um, not simply the fact that they're quaint, uh, that that they're ancient, uh, but um, but but the fact that they have they have a sense for what is truly profound and non-trivial in theology, mm-hmm. um, and in, in particular in relation to um, in relation to the doctrine the doctrine of the Trinity, they have such a sense for the transcendence of God. That's that's one. That's probably if I, if there was one takeaway from what I've learned from them is is to have that sense that because God is so God is holy, other God is transcendent. We have to be double careful in terms of how we interpret the activity of God in history, His revelation in Scripture, and so on. Um, not everything is seems. Not, not everything is as it seems at first blush sometimes. Um, so just that alertness to the divine holiness and holy otherness um, for me was phenomenal uh, to learn. Um, and <clears throat> on the topic of the divine missions specifically, I think uh, Augustine and Aquinas are probably the two theologians that are developing this theme um from scratch mostly from scratch with augustine and then aquinas builds up on augustine's uh, theology of missions and then everything else um is pretty much i think uh footnoting a kind of a footnoting of of, of either augustine or aquinas in mm-hmm. in the history of theology i can i can unpack that if you want a little more but maybe as we go sure in sure yeah we can yeah we circle back around to that idea. Mm-hmm. You you mentioned a few times in your uh, first book that Augustine, part of what Augustine is doing is uh, debugging um, some of the mm-hmm. theological development, maybe of the Cappadocians or the East, and then Aquinas is picking up some unresolved uh, mm-hmm. tensions in Augustine's formulations. Would you say, mm-hmm. is, am I understanding you right in the way that you understand um, kind of just generally the way you understand that development, like the, the idea yeah. of debugging and kind of resolving tensions. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I I, I think so. Um, I I, I don't think uh, Augustine's. I mean, Aquinas strays too far, too far away from Augustine. Um, mm. I think there's definitely uh, there's definitely things that Augustine says that Aquinas would not, uh, and does not. But um, um, but but never too far. Never too mm-hmm. far afield from that. Uh, I'm not sure if maybe de- maybe debugging is. I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm still happy with that word or not. Okay. But, uh, <laughs> but it it may be fine. Um, but I think that uh, uh, what I I mean this is another thing that I maybe should have mentioned earlier. That one of the things that I really like about it, about Augustine, <clears throat> um, and and this shows up in Aquinas as well is just how. Uh, they both understand that theology is a spiritual undertaking. Mm. I mean, this is this is not the kind of knowledge that is simply theoretical knowledge, but it's the kind of knowledge that requires preparation. And I was so I was just so amazed when when every now and then in in the uh, in in the doctrine of the tri- in in the Trinity, which is what Augustine's book is called, he he often says. If you don't understand this notion, if this seems like too difficult a notion for you, then go home and pray and fast, mm-hmm. because these are not the kinds of things that are just immediately understood, and and that's right. the sense that I that I mentioned earlier, the sense of the divinity, 
Um, and, and I think in our Western context, we, we just so easily naturalize theology. Um, and we just think it's all about, you know, doing some good and, and whatnot. But it, it's, we don't have that sense for something that lies beyond the horizon of what we're normally accustomed to. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is what I think where the value of the classics uh, resides, um, because it just shakes us, it defamiliar, defamiliarizes us with, uh, with what we take for granted. Hmm. Yeah, and the there's kind of an ongoing conversation about resourcement and the... Um, you know, drawing upon the great tradition. Um, and the caricature of that is sometimes that you're just repeating lines or regurgitating or just, you know, kind of bring it to the surface and just, you know, hitting send, uh, send tweet or something. But part of what uh, you're doing and kind of a response to that is that it's not only a repeating of arguments uh, or repristination of something outside of its uh, the context in which it actually made sense. Uh, but rather a kind of a constructive um, drawing upon some of the uh, content, of course, but also mm-hmm. making making some of the same moves and adopting mm-hmm. a similar disposition, uh, as you're kind of mentioning about the transcendence and awe of God. Uh, right. That's one of the things I really appreciated about uh, your work. Uh, specific, you you articulate this specifically in. Uh, your inseparable operations book, but it shows up here too. But the idea of uh, kind of a theological humility that's required uh, when you study the doctrine of the Trinity, but these specific uh, as you delve deeper in, hmm. I thought that was helpful in sense of not only as a dis the disposition of a theologian, uh, which I think is really helpful, mm-hmm. like your personal disposition, but something mm-hmm. that's actually required uh, as part of your method. In this area, um, so I thought mm. I thought mm. those those connections uh, are helpful that you're doing in your book, but also something mm. that we can recover mm. from. Yeah, absolutely. Tradition. If I can just piggyback on the uh, retrieval bit that you mentioned, it's not simply a repristination of the past. Um, I think that um, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, the legal scholar uh, Ronald Dworkin. It's one of the you know major legal scholars in American constitutional interpretation, okay. and he has this uh, he has this uh, concept of making the law the best that it can best it can be, or making the constitution the best it can be. Uh, which means that when you're when you're recovering the classic, you're not simply recovering the classic in in light of its its original intent and its original context, but also you're applying it to a new set of questions, mm-hmm. and it it sort of demonstrates its uh, staying power in how it is able to engage with these new conversations, and I think that's what retrieval wants to do. Uh, is is to bring Aquinas and Augustine into conversation with uh, uh, contemporary philosophy and theology and science and whatnot. Yeah, that's really really helpful way to put that. As we kind of circle back around to kind of like the way that you develop your theology of divine missions in your book, uh, you define you know kind of as you start the book, you you define uh, missions in a few ways, but. One of the ways you define a divine mission is the manifestation of a divine person in our world through union with a created thing or effect. So one of the things I wanted to ask you is how important is this specific definition for your unfolding of Trinitarian theologies? Or maybe another way to put it is what might need modification or go wrong if you define mission differently or more broadly? Like Mm -hmm. if you just thought of missions as 
some of the um, the operations or mm. the actions. Mm -hmm. uh, so what do you think is at stake yeah. in that definition and how does that kind of relate to your project? Right, which is, I mean, that way of understanding missions as action, I think is the the kind of the default popular understanding of, of um, when people hear the word mission, the mission of the sun, they typically think in terms of what the sun does. So the mission of the sun is to preach uh, the good news to the poor. The mission of the sun is to die and so on and so forth, mm -hmm. right? Um, and sure, that is connected to the mission of the sun. But I wanted to I wanted to 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 um, put my finger on something that goes a lot deeper than the kinds of things that the sun does, and that is who the sun is. If I could reformulate the kinds of things more than the kinds of things that Christ does. And I wanted to get at who Christ is. And I think that's what the concept of notion is really articulating. Um, and this, this definition, the manifestation of a divine person in our world through union with a created thing or effect um, is trying to get at that. Mm -hmm. and, and the idea here is that Simply a mission is to use Rahner's term, terminology, a self-communication of a divine person, a, a self-giving, a self-gifting of a divine person uh, to a particular created reality, to a particular mm -hmm. created thing. Um, in other words, um, as opposed to a theophany, for example, where God may manifest himself through, say, the burning bush. Uh, or through the three men that appear to Abraham at Mamre. Um, a mission is much more than just a signaling, a manifestation, a you know, a pointer to God. A mission is a self-giving, is a permanent giving of one divine person, a union in that sense with a with a given reality. So so what I try to do in the book is to say that in the mission of the sun we have a permanent union between the one who comes from the father as begotten word and the human nature of Jesus Christ. And then we have the mission of the holy spirit which is the invisible mission of the holy spirit where we have a permanent union between the Holy Spirit and and the person with whom the Holy Spirit is united, that is the person whom the Spirit baptizes into the body of Christ, um, and that's what's unique about the notion of mission, that it's permanent. It's not simply a temporary empowerment uh, or presence, uh, but but a um, a permanent presence. So that's why I think the mission the mission of Christ continues in heaven. The mission of Christ continues in the beatific vision because the Son is still united to his human human nature in heaven. Um, and therefore it, it's a mission that never ends. Um, so so what might change? I mean, what what are we um, what do we lose if we don't observe this distinction? Well, I think the first thing we, we, we would lose is we will not be able to make sense of the uniqueness of what we have in Jesus Christ. If a mission is just another set of operations, well, God has been active in the Old Testament as well. But as Paul says in Galatians 4, now in the fullness of time, right, he has revealed himself, he has given himself, God has given himself to us in the person of his son. 
So I think absent this distinction um, between missions and operations, we wouldn't be able to secure the supremacy, I think, of Christianity. Right. On the one hand, the New Testament does deepen our knowledge uh, of Yahweh. And on the other, even though the spirit might be at work in other religions, and I'm using this, I'm, I'm use, using the category of common grace, a very, mm-hmm. you know, very acceptable uh, theological category uh, where, yeah, we, we can say we can say that the, that God is at work wherever truth is found, where, wherever goodness is is um, embodied in the world but i want to say there's something qualitatively different between say a buddhist who, who does a good thing or between say a muslim who understands that god exists and therefore you know through common grace has a share in the truth of god um and a christian uh who is indwelt by the whole trinity so what i try to do in the book is to say um, without this distinction, we're not really able to articulate very well the supremacy of Christianity, because God is at work anywhere in the world. I mean, everywhere in the world, but in Christianity and in those people, those um, persons who are indwelt by the Trinity, He is united to those persons. So that's that's um, maybe I went a little bit too fast here, but oh no, that's I great. Think, I think there's a lot of there, there's a lot that's at stake. I think in in articulating this distinction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's excellent. I have a few things jotted down here uh, as an example of the way that you unfold a theology of divine missions kind of mm. helped clarify some things for me. <laughs> when I, Sometimes when I phrase these questions of like, you know, some people have a, a difficulty distinguishing, you know, mission and operations like, it, you know, that's just a way of self-confession. It was like, oh, yeah, this, <laughs> is, this has been blurred for me. And so thinking yeah. about uh, the way that you defined it, I'd say one, this is the book as a whole is helping me uh, helping clarify and ex- give a, a extended illustration of uh, how important uh, thinking about the nature of like causes or causality, but then also the nature of created effects uh, that you mentioned mm-hmm. in your first book. It really came to to life and implication in this book, but also mm-hmm. thinking about the uniqueness of the incarnation, kind of mm-hmm. clarifying what we mean when we say theophany in the Old Testament, and then the visible and invisible missions of the Son and Spirit, um, and then how that also relates to, one, uh, my own personal relationship with God or the believer's relationship with the triune God, and then how that flows, continues to flow out into the world. Um, So all of those things, at the very least, I think part of what your project is doing is demonstrating that how you understand divine missions or that relationship affects all of these different areas um, mm. and then mm-hmm. threading that needle mm. to see here's mm. a, you know, as the, the curse of the Christian theologian is that we have to say everything at once uh, to <laughs> say, once we say, if, if, if I deepen my understanding of divine missions and your work has, uh, is, is pushing into that direction, then that impacts a whole number of things, mm. uh, both in the gospel, but also yes you know, theology proper, and then you even go into ecclesiology and kind of interact with some, what we sometimes think of as as mystical theology of just this idea of what does it mean to uh, be in the presence of God or enter into the life of God. I think you've done a really good job of showing how deeper thinking or or difficult thinking on the divine missions at the very least helps clarify Mm. what the questions are and how those Mm. relate to one another. I, and I think that's why that's why Trinitarian theology re- requires prayer, um, mm. 
Um, and 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 what I love about the category emissions is that it it's it's telling us, um, it's really uh, pushing us to giving to give an, an account of salvation of the nature of salvation, which is in 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 terms other than just what does salvation do for me. Um, it's more about God. Salvation is is a way of of being drawn into the very life of the Trinity. And that's the kind of the ontological, I think you, you, perhaps you might call it a correction, an ontological correction of the more legal, moral categories in which we see salvation. Um, and it does take us in the direction of the mystical. You're, you're mm. absolutely right. Um, but it doesn't have to be that it doesn't have to be any kind of mystic. It's not any kind of mysticism, right? It's a very crystal centric right. kind of mysticism. So, yeah, and you clarified several times in the book that a uh, emphasis on the ontological does not necessarily um, demand that you reject or let go of, you know, some forensic or legal kind of right. ideas, but that these things certainly will re at the very least reorient um, some of the ways that mm -hmm. we approach these topics. Mm -hmm. And I like what you said too, because it kind of circling back around to Augustine's idea of if you don't understand this about the Trinity, you, you need to commit yourself to prayer and guard your life um, as more of, you know, because you can kind of scoff at that and say, oh, well, that's kind of <laughs> outside of the project of what we're doing here. Um, but I was even just talking to students today about the nature of the gospel and then working into some Christology. It's like if if these things are true about union with Christ, one of the reasons this requires prayer is that if this is true and you become convinced of that, that then affects the way that you understand your relationship with the God, which is at the center of mm. you know the Christian life. Mm. Mm. So that's one of the reasons you know mm. hermeneutics and theology proper are often so difficult is because they're very uncomfortable. Because if you mm. shift a presupposition or a foundational reality, then that has implications for how I not only this uh, how I perceive this subject, but how I perceive. Uh, who I am, right, mm. and it, who, yeah. what my relationship mm. with God is. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and ma this makes it this makes it all the more harder. I think it I think it's calling us, it's calling us to think about theological education, theological formation in ways that are really pushing against the grain of what, mm -hmm. in our Western capitalist approach, we and how we think about education in this system, which is more of a kind of a service a customer experience, a student pays for an education and is expected to receive something in return. But it's really a, a call to formation. Mm -hmm. So there, there's a real tension, I think, in, in our educational models between, between you know, the, the kind of the conditions that make theology possible and the conditions of the market. Right. Yeah, so thinking about um, how, you know, this kind of relates to how we can conceive of even thinking about theology proper. Two of my favorite illustrations that you use in the book, you mentioned them in both books, but you make use of um, these as well as we're thinking about what's the relationship between the processions and the missions. Um, two of my favorites are the story of Flatland and then also the nature of a magnet. Um, so, Obviously, you can't get into everything that you use these for. You use them in some creative ways. But could you just kind of summarize how you understand these particular examples? Because I think these are 
uh, my favorites, but also they they do a lot of work in your mm. uh, book to illustrate. Um, so uh, how yeah. how do you understand these examples and like what do you think they illustrate about these particular discussions? Yeah, they they do do a lot of work. That's that's for that's for sure. Um, and and they have. Uh, and they sort of play different roles. On the one hand, Flatland um, is a book written by Edwin Abbott in 1884, uh, where Abbott is imagining um, uh, is imagining an interaction between two-dimensional beings, uh, what he calls Flatlanders, uh, and three-dimensional and higher-dimensional beings, uh, and uh, which he calls Spacelanders. Um, and <clears throat> at Abbott. You know, Abbott says, imagine yourself being a two-dimensional reality and not having not having any sense of of another dimension. Uh, and imagine what happens when a three-dimensional reality, such as a sphere, is passing through your world. And it's you know, obviously, as we know, it creates um, a, an impression on your world, which looks like a circle. In your world, the sphere is not going to be a sphere; it's going to be a circle. But it's going to be a weird kind of circle one that decreases in size and then just pops out of nowhere and then you know uh, and then just evaporates um and i think it's an excellent illustration to um to this um uh difficulty that we have as finite beings of understanding uh, uh transcendent realities uh, so flatland for me um as for many other theologians that have actually used this uh, the, this metaphor, either in their teaching or somewhere else, um, it just it's it's an it's it's a kind of a um, warning uh, that we do not confuse the sphere with the circle, mm -hmm. that we understand that we understand the distinction between the shadow and the reality, and we understand that when that what we see when we see God, who is a transcendent being acting and operating in our world, that we ought never to confuse the effects. That God's presence in the world conjures up with the very being of God. That there's a there's a fundamental distinction and also a connection between these things mm -hmm. uh, in the book. So uh, when I talk about a mission and procession, I'm trying to say that that in a mission, the transcendent God, specifically a transcendent person, unites himself with a particular created effect. In Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God unites himself to the human nature of Jesus Christ. But as all good theologians are telling us, do not confuse the human nature of Jesus Christ with his divinity. These two remain distinct, but in, but inseparably united. So that's what the uh, the flatland analogy does for me. The magneton analogy does something different because one of the things that I try to that I try to do, that I have to do in this project is to distinguish between between the way in which God acts in the world inseparably, right? So so his operations are always inseparable operations because he is one God. He acts as one. But, and this is a really important uh, distinction, in the mission, we do not just have inseparable, the inseparable trinity, but in a mission, only one divine person is given given to us or given to us specifically as that divine person. Right. So I think the the the, the analogy of magnet helps me get to that. So, for example, when you take um, when you take a magnet and then you allow the the ma magnet to attract a paperclip, it's the whole magnet 
uh, analogically to the whole Trinity, which <clears throat> attracts the paperclip. You can read here the human nature of Jesus Christ. And nevertheless, the paperclip unites itself or is united specifically to one pole of the magnet, not simply to the whole magnet, but to one pole of the magnet. And not only that, but the paperclip also receives a peculiar specific charge of one of the poles of the magnet, not just of the whole magnet. So it just it helps us to, to see how it's mm -hmm. not it's not um, sort of contradictory to say that the whole Trinity attracts and I mean creates and attracts the humanity of Christ, but only the Son specifically is united to it or clothed with it, as Cyril likes to say, Cyril of Alexandria. Mm -hmm. So that's what these 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 metaphors do for me. <laughs> yeah, those it's very helpful because you don't. Uh, you use them as illustrations uh, a few times and uh, develop it and then kind of uh, circle back around to kind of clear helps, I think, clarify um, some of the the abstract technical discussions mm. as and kind of brings it back around. So with those ca kind of categories, I appreciate you kind of uh, summarizing uh, those illustrations. Like when we're thinking about um, a biblical text like, uh, Matthew 3 and the baptism of Jesus. Mm. Uh, one of the things I think the um, uh, circle analogy of a sphere versus a circle and what mm -hmm. would allow a flatlander to understand why this is not just a malfunctioning circle that's uh, doing <laughs> different things, but it's like either space person, I'm getting the story wrong, but the space person would need to take them into the different dimension to sh and then see so that they could see it or behold it. Right. Um, or verb, verbal revelation Verbally. to, to yes. tell you that this is from a different dimension and that's why you, what you're seeing, there's a disconnect. I think that's right. really uh, helpful because it hits at some of the critiques that get not not just the illustration, but this the priority of propositional revelation as we're kind of thinking through these versus just observations of events. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking about the baptism of Jesus. Sometimes this one comes up. You see the baptized Jesus, the voice from heaven, the dove that descends, and Augustine and Aquinas mentioned talk about these, of course. Like as you're thinking about this, how would you just kind of briefly like treat that? How would a theology of divine missions and inseparable operations uh, deepen our understanding of this scene or help help us not misunderstand what's going on? And sometimes mm -hmm. this comes up as is this the right text then given divine missions and inseparable operations? Is this the right text to refute? something like modalism um, <laughs> or or what would you say the key theological takeaways uh, from this mm -hmm. scene are? Yeah, I, I know I mean, that was just, a lot. Sorry. No, it's fine. It's fine. I, I love this. I mean, um, if you go back to Flatland, um, it's really interesting how Abbott really thinks about how it might how it might happen that a Flatlander would understand that there is another dimension, because initially the Flatlander is just going to see some anomaly. He's just going to see something in his experience that which in his experience does not make sense. You know, a circle that pops out of nowhere, you know, uh, and then and and so that in itself is not going to lead him to, to speculate about a, a third dimension. The one thing that does make him um, think about a third dimension is that he hears a voice. Mm -hmm. So he hears a voice and this is a sphere somehow communicating to the Flatlander about a third dimension and, and there's an initial process whereby the sphere is trying to explain to him about the third dimension 
but he just doesn't get it. The flatlander just does not get it. So he understands there's a diff there's there's something more, but he just doesn't get. And the only way he gets it is when the sphere somehow lifts him up to the third heaven, as it were. Right? He lifts him up to the third dimension and shows him the third dimension. You know, so when when we when we consider this analogy and we think about how the church came to confess the divinity of Jesus Christ, um, it, it really has to do with proposition, propositional revelation. It has to do with the fact that Scripture confesses certain things and verbally states certain things, right? Otherwise, we would not have been able to arrive at that, right? And and why not? Because because Scripture shows Christ to be doing exactly the kinds of acts that God is doing. So he he creates, right? He tames nature, right? He heals the sick. He pronounces forgive, forgiveness of sins and so on and so forth, right? So on the basis of the operations alone, it would be very easy to fall into a modalism, mm -hmm. right? Because he is the Yahweh that has returned, right? But it's only the verbal distinctions, right, that, that we see appearing, right? Uh, him, him praying to the Father, Jesus praying to the Father, and then the, the distinctions of the baptism of Jesus, all of these are alerting us to the fact that there are some irreducible distinctions within this one God, right? But we know that verbally. We don't really comprehend that. So, I, I, I mean, theology does not comprehend the distinctions that exist between the divine persons. We just know that they're there. We propositionally know, right? And the thing is, we haven't been lifted up to spaceland yet. We have not been lifted up to have the beatific vision. Only when we have that will we be able to truly understand. But now we know that we have to speak in certain ways and confess in certain ways, even if we do not always understand what that means completely. Yeah, I think um, I like to think about this, this the importance of uh, verbal revelation in biblical theology when we're thinking about interpreting events like uh, the Exodus mm. or what, because these events are capable of multiple interpretations. And so mm -hmm. thinking about how is the author portrayed this event and that kind of norming my interpretation of that event. And so it, mm. I think that's important for biblical theology, but you've helped me see that this is also important for like systematic theology as we're thinking through uh, interpreting the actions of God apart yes. from verbal revelation will could lead us into quite a number of different formulations. Um, so thinking yeah. about mm -hmm. in this scene, modalism would be ruled out uh, by the son's specific statements, you know, in the gospels, for example, or the commitment to monotheism uh, rather than a just a simple observation of mm -hmm. divine works. Um, exactly. Yes. Yeah. I mean, even though we have, we, we appear to have some kind of distinction um, between uh, between the works. Um, we have other texts uh, in Scripture where the Son only does what He sees the Father doing, uh, and Christ confessing that that the Father is the one doing these works. That is specifically the works that He's doing. Uh, so um, so that's why you have sort of this interesting dynamic between between the the works that we see on the one hand, the visual, if you will, right, or the sensible, and then the 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 verbal interpretation of what we see, right? which uh, and and we sort of always have to play these against each other or sort of help you know have them qualify each other. Well, as we were thinking about uh, seeing, uh, one of your last major discussions here is on the beatific vision, um, thinking mm -hmm. about the uh, the way in which we see the divine missions. I like the 
you're drawing on this distinction between a life of grace and a life of glory on this pilgrimage uh, we see through a glass darkly as um, I love the the phrase wayfarers on the way mm -hmm. uh, versus comprehensors, those who see it and uh, behold mm -hmm. it. Um, uh, so how do you think a strong theology of divine missions, we might ask in this way, how could a strong, robust theology of the divine missions help us clarify what we mean by seeing God and becoming like him or just the beatific vision? Um, does it does it alter uh, misconceptions or does it deepen just that notion of seeing God? Or how mm. would you kind of mm -hmm. uh, pinpoint how mm. a theology of divine missions <clears throat> helps us yeah. as we think about that eschatological vision. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you how it's helped me. Uh, and I'm sure there's many other ways in which, in, in which this can, um, this can um, uh, have consequences. But one of the, one of the, one of the ways in which it has, it has helped me is, is this deeper, more ontological understanding of what salvation is really all about, um, which is really, um, the union with the Trinity. It's, it's being embraced by the Trinity and united with the Trinity. Jesus says in John 14, 23, if you love me, you will obey me and my father will love you and we will come to make our home with you. This is what I think salvation is ultimately about. So, so then heaven, what is heaven ultimately about? Heaven, I think, is ultimately about the enjoyment of God. Right? That's what's going to satisfy our hearts. And one of the ways in which this has helped me is that it, it sort of helped me second guess some of these visions of heaven and images of heaven, of heaven that I was um, influenced by and that I see a lot in the literature. Um, so for example, let me just give you some examples. Someone said that what we'll do in heaven is we will be learning each other's languages, like all the languages in the world, we're going to spend an eternity, you know, learning all these languages because all these languages are beautiful and all that, and cultures are beautiful and so on. And said, so, yeah, okay, I, I, I mean, I can see the point of that, and I agree that all cultures are beautiful. But really, in heaven, we're going to be contemplating God. I mean, that's the primary thing. That's the primary reality we're sort of longing for, not learning Romanian right. or German or <laughs> Russian or something else. Um, but contemplating God. Um, someone else says, well, well, in heaven, in heaven, work has to con continue in heaven because, because work is uh, honorable and therefore work has to con continue in heaven. So I was in this conversation with some, with some um, scientists and we have a Boston uh, area, a converse, Templeton conversation of theology and science. Someone says, well, I would, I would like the work of, uh, the work of physicists, for example, to continue in heaven. And someone said, well, what would be the point of that? You can just go ask God about, you know, whatever, whatever, you know, theory and physics you have, you have questions mm -hmm. about. So what's the point of the, the ongoing work of, of, of a physicist, for example, in heaven? Um, so I, it just made me realize, why don't we have such a small view of heaven mm -hmm. when we think that it's going to be, you know, just more of the same? but perhaps much more, you know, in a much more exquisite kind of excellent kind of way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's the fact that the missions, right. An approach through the missions um, helps us understand how the Christian life, I think is all about building capacity for mm -hmm. heaven. 
preparing oneself for heaven. And I'm still working out, you know, how to best how to best understand this in terms of the Christian life. But I want to see there's a continuity between the life of grace and the life of glory. Mm-hmm. And the continuity is exactly this. Even in the life of grace, we still have the Trinity. But we have not been completely transformed, right? Um, mm-hmm. And transfigured by the Trinity, which is what is going to happen in the life of glory. So, you know, can we can we can we reaffirm the centrality of God, the centrality of the enjoyment of God, the Trinitarian God, for salvation and for the eschaton? And I would love mm-hmm. to see that happen. It's it, it's that's where I am right now. Yeah, yeah, that's a good word, a good uh, reorienting word um, for, and it's a, it's a nice place that to end your uh, your book as well as you're thinking about the shift towards the shape of our future hope uh, in that regard. So just kind of respecting our time here, um, if I'm a pastor or maybe a professor in a different discipline, what encouragement might you give someone for digging uh, deep into Trinitarian theology? You know, beyond maybe learning the formulations and learning some good ways to talk about this. But if I'm a, you know, doing academic work in a different discipline, or just a pastor trying to do the the work of pastoring day in day out, how can this uh, sometimes difficult and technical loci impact uh, ministry in the churches? Hmm. Oh wow! This is I mean this is such a good question, such a broad broad question at the same time, because you're raising this issue of of um, of the relevance of um, of Trinitarian theology for the broader church. Uh, and we this is a Cinderella. I mean, it's a Cinderella in so many of our evangelical churches. You know, we touch on the Trinity, Trinity Sunday, maybe. Now we have to preach on the Trinity because it's Trinity mm-hmm. Sunday and, you know, roll our eyes and whatnot. Maybe not. Okay, nobody's rolling their eyes. But <laughs> but it's still, um, it's still, you know, it doesn't come natural. Um, and, and I think it doesn't come natural because... Um, in one sense, it's 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 hard. I mean, it it is difficult conceptual conceptual uh, clarifications. But for me, if if you don't if you don't try to wrestle with these things, it's so easy to become either a functional tritheist or a functional modalist mm-hmm. with with all kinds of distortions, right? Resulting from that. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, how, how do you preach? How do you preach the Trinity in uh, in church? I think you you go you go to texts such as the baptism of Jesus in Matthew three. Mm-hmm. You go there and you unpack that, and you talk about John five and and so on. And in Galatians four, what does it mean to be adopted? Romans eight is one of my favorites. So you know, when 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 we don't know what to pray, but the Spirit is praying. You know, and and that text does not make sense apart from an understanding of the Trinity. So you sort of, you know, I think there's so much depth you can mine out of the text of Scripture um, if you are equipped with some of this, uh, some of this, um, some of these distinctions that the church has made. Um, so I don't know if that's what you mean by encouragement, uh, motivation. Yeah, that yeah mm-hmm. that's that's what I'd say. Yeah, I think uh, that that's wonderful. Just recognizing the theological richness of the uh, Trinitarian thinking for not only our construction of theology, but of our, our reading and understanding the biblical idiom and these biblical texts. Mm. Um, and we've talked about, you know, being wayfarers on the way 
preparing our hearts for seeing God and uh, being in relationship with him and the task of theology being a part of that. And so I would say mm. for sure, uh, these last uh, the last couple years, your your work on the Trinity, inseparable operations and divine mission has certainly helped me as I've been uh, pilgriming along the way uh, in this area. So I, I really mm. appreciate you talking to us today and uh, your work. Thank you, Chad. I really appreciate you having me on, and uh, thank you for your wonderful questions. And I, and I do hope we get to we get to meet at some point. Yeah, uh, personally, <laughs> not not in Flatland, you know, in in real in real life. <laughs> yes, in real life, or in or in uh, who knows where. I mean, God, God, God knows in in His providence. Yeah, that's right. Well, thanks. Thank you, Chad.